0: Welcome to this edition of the Daily Signal Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reich. Today we're talking with author Stephen Hayward about his new book, M. Stanton Evans, Conservative Wit, Apostle of Freedom. Welcome, Steve Hayward, uh, to the program today. We're going to be discussing Steve's new book, M. Stanton Evans, Conservative Wit, Apostle of Freedom. Stephen Hayward is a resident scholar at UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies. He's a visiting lecturer at Berkeley Law. He's also been a distinguished visiting professor at Pepperdine's School of Public Policy. He's the author of uh, a number of highly regarded books, including two volumes on The Age of Reagan. Uh, and patriotism is not enough. Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns, and the arguments that redefined American conservatism. And many, of course, will know Stephen from his daily blogging at powerlineblog.com, a, a, a site that I visit every morning. Uh, Stephen, it's great to have you on the program to talk about the great Stan Evans. Well, thanks, Richard. It's great to be uh, joining you again. All right. So, Stephen, thinking about this new book on the great journalist, Stan Evans, uh, who was Stan Evans and what got you interested in writing about him?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I think the two things to know about him is he was a hugely important figure in the modern conservative movement. And although he passed away just seven years ago now, he's already being kind of forgotten. And so that for those two reasons, I thought it was worth writing a book about him, uh, a standard old fashioned biography from, you know, birth to his last. And. I uh, also I knew him uh, pretty well, not as well as many people did. Uh, but I do think it's important that conservatives keep alive the memory of their heroes and teachers. And so I think it's important for us to have a biography project for lots of people.
0: So Stan Evans, uh, legendary conservative journalist. You write about his career extensively. In the book, you talk about a, a number of his uh, contributions, uh, important contributions to political campaigns, his journalism career, his books uh, and the mark he makes and help building uh, the conservative movement what, what really formed Stan Evans and, and what made him decide uh, to become a journalist? Well
1: I think um, I think it was in his bloodstream you know his father was a fairly well-known uh, professor of English literature and a staunch conservative back in the 30s and 40s before there really was a modern conservative movement. And then Stan went to Yale uh, starting in the fall of 1952, which was the same year Bill Buckley had graduated and published, of course, his famous book, God and Man at Yale. Uh, and and uh, so Stan got to Yale and he fell in the slipstream of um, the residue, you might say, that Buckley had left there and got active in uh, conservative politics at Yale. He actually, uh, Stan founded the party of the right inside the Yale Political Union, which I think still exists. He became a reporter and editorial writer on the Yale Daily News, just as Buckley had been, uh, and he was rebelling right away in class against the leftism—the same kind of leftism that Buckley rebelled against at Yale. So, you know, he got an early start, um, and you know, from there, uh, I think what I, I think what's interesting about Stan is we we know him as a journalist and also as a political activist, and we'll come to that. But he's also a pretty serious thinker. Uh, I had either forgotten or never knew in the first place that when he got out of Yale. He actually did do a year of graduate study under Ludwig von Mises at NYU before he then decided to do journalism as his main career. But he uh, one of the things that you can tell about Stan is that he could have been a highly successful academic and I think could have been one of the titans that we rank up on the
0: bookshelves next to you know, Eric Vogelin or Milton Friedman or someone like that. Wow, that's that's impressive. I mean, I wanted to talk more about him studying with Ludwig von Mises um, So at Yale. Does he, he arrives at Yale, Uh, he's the son of an academic, uh, Medford Evans. Uh, Does he arrive at Yale and it's sort of like uh, this, there's sort of a progressive, uh, you know, collectivist mindset, he pushes against that, but what starts to really form him? Well, you know, he starts running across some of the early classics
1: of conservatism. You know, he, he, I think the most important figure For forming Stan's early views Was Frank Chodorov A figure who's been really forgotten And I think should be brought back I actually did about a I don't know Five or six page digression About Frank Chodorov in the book Because I I went back And read a lot of Chodorov myself I knew the name And had read a couple of essays Of his years ago Uh, uh, But I had forgotten how great Frank Chodorov was. Uh, Now, he was very much a pure libertarian. Chodorov was one of those guys who said, if you call me a conservative, I'm going to punch you in the nose. Um, And he was also, and this is interesting influence on Stan, that's very subtle, Chodorov was also... um, very typical of the non-interventionist point of view you associate with uh, libertarians from back in that era and, of course, right up to today. You know, he was very skeptical, if not opposed to World War II, in fact, or to American involvement in World War II, I should say. Um, And, you know, later you can pick up hints. They're very subtle that Stan had a lot of sympathy for a non-interventionist point of view. Uh, and was always conflicted, I think, during the Cold War with the necessity for needing uh, a lot of defense preparedness against the Soviet Union. But at the same time, he was, uh, especially you saw this after 9-11 and after the Cold War was over, he was not a fan of, our, of, of foreign interventionism uh, and very much uh, cast a skeptical eye toward um, you know the occupation of Iraq, for example. Of course, that's toward the end of the story, of his story, but still... Uh, in the Vietnam years, he didn't want to give aid and comfort to the anti-war movement because he understood its um, a character. But at the same time, he here and there he would betray that boy. There's a Johnson administration totally mismanaging this war, uh, and so anyway, he got a lot of that from Chodorov, I think.
0: Yeah, so, so Stan ends up interestingly in Indianapolis uh, early early in his career in his twenties, and is appointed editor in chief of the Indianapolis Star uh, at the age of 26. Uh, and so this is a, a major regional newspaper. Um, and, you know, I guess we have to remind people that, you know, at this, at this period, uh, newspapers really mattered, uh, <laughs> editorial pages really mattered, uh, as, a, as a source of where people got their news and information, as opposed to now they're sort of dying on the vine, but, um, maybe talk some about that and how that's, how Stan's career starts to take shape. Yeah, that is an interesting point. It's worth mentioning that he did work
1: briefly out of uh, college for Frank Chodorov at the Freeman, which then really was what you know one of the only conservative or libertarian-leaning publications around. You know, National Review hadn't even started yet. Uh, Human Events was an eight-page newsletter. He later worked for Human Events in Washington, but yeah, the Indianapolis is actually the Indianapolis News. Uh, which was the evening paper owned by Eugene Pulliam, who also owned the Indianapolis Star, which does still exist today. Uh, And Pulliam was a solid Midwestern conservative. He wanted to recruit conservative writers and find a conservative editor. He had hoped, oddly enough, to lure um, uh, Bill Buckley to Indianapolis, but that's obviously unthinkable for Buckley, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, Anyway, uh, Stan decided to go there to be an editorial writer, and before very long, Pulliam recognized his talent and energy and made him editor-in-chief at, like you say, the age of 26. He was the youngest editor of a major daily newspaper uh, in America at the time, and I think maybe ever. And he mostly concentrated on the editorial pages, which were quite robust in those days, but he did write the occasional news story. Uh, And I I knew he had been at the Indianapolis News. I had never bothered to go back and look up any of that old journalism, but of course I did for the book. And I was astonished at his output uh, and how interesting it was, how sophisticated it was. And at the same time, Evans himself said, uh, he told Time Magazine, in fact, I think in 1961, that, you know, my views are kind of the views of the farmer from Seymour, Indiana. Loves his country, loves God and his community. And, you know, so even this guy, even though Stan was a five beta kappa graduate of Yale and otherwise fitted for, you know, the Acella corridor, as we'd say today, he was much more at home in Indianapolis.
0: You yeah, know, I like I mean that's something that you bring out in the book about Stan, and maybe the contrast, I mean you mentioned Buckley. Uh, Which you also mentioned, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal wanted to recruit him quickly away. Uh And, and, and maybe that's why he was offered a reason why he was offered the editor in chief position and he stays in in Indianapolis. But that's a part of his character that he uh, rock and roll uh, cigarettes, Coors beer, or, or, you know, I guess Coors beer wasn't yet a thing in the sixties or the fifties, but, you know, he liked, he liked, uh, traditional things, uh, in, in American popular culture, uh, and, uh, wasn't really out for sort of, uh, you know, it, it gave no trapping or sign that he was an elitist in any respect. Uh, he was, yeah, as, as you say, the agreed with the farmer from Seymour, Indiana, more or less.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, he yeah, he's legendary for his wit, which he, we can come to in a bit, but yeah, he had plain tastes. He liked to joke that he liked Hardy's fast food, big gulp sodas from 7-11, um, which could yeah. also be used as ashtrays. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, you know, people would talk about taking him to a fancy restaurant uh, like Tom Winter who was the publisher of Human Events and you know, Stan would order a steak, and, you know, the waiter would come with a big sidecar Bernays sauce, and Stan would say indignantly, you're not going to ruin that perfectly good steak with that stuff, are you? <laughs> so, you know, hot dogs, right? Uh, and and, uh, and I remember, you know, I was an intern for him. That's how I got to know him, as I was a product of his National Journalism Center myself, right out of college. And I remember in the 80s, this is early 80s, he often wore turtlenecks, which had really fallen out of fashion from the 60s into the 70s, but he wore turtlenecks a lot. It was, it was very rare to see him in a coat and tie. He would when he would go to Capitol Hill or some you know important fair, but otherwise he dressed casually, he ate casually, and, he, and like you say, he loved rock and roll and was often the winner of any rock and roll music trivia night at any bar that had one any place in the country.
0: <laughs> oh, you mentioned uh, his wit. Uh, maybe we can talk about that. Uh, I won't even try and recount any Stan Evans jokes because it's all, it's all, it's him. I mean, it's his voice. It's the facial expressions he would give off. I remember, you know, watching him several times and and the timing and delivery of the joke, which is, you know, key for any comedian, but he he did it really well. Uh, but that that became a huge part of his, uh, uh, of the Stan Evans you know legend and you know I can remember at Philadelphia Society meetings the, the mere approach of Stan Evans to the microphone people are already laughing in anticipation of what he's about to say yeah no he had the
1: presence of a first-rate stand-up comic uh, and by the way I mean he could have made a living at that if, that if that had been the way his um, ambitions and mind had run uh, but you're right. it was the comic timing and his drawl and delivery. although you can see the logic of a lot of his jokes uh, was pretty consistent. He liked to find uh, you know some liberal cliche or some liberal perception and turn it on its head or turn it inside out. And so some of these you'll get the humor of, even though, yeah, like you say, none of us can do the delivery. I've seen people try and tell his jokes and they just fall flat. Right. Because. But, you know, one of my favorites of his. But, you know, uh, know,
0: just on his on his wit, though, it was it was taking the platitudes and the sort of. You know, self-importance of the left and just totally burying it.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of my favorites was, uh, you know, I grew up, I'm so old, I like to say now, I grew up with that favorite cliche of liberals from the 60s and early 70s that ran any country that can land a man on the moon can solve X problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's come back a few times in recent years. Anyway, you, saw, you heard that all the time from liberal editorial writers and speakers, and Stan's version was any country that can land a man on the moon can abolish the income tax. <laughs> right? so, and, you know, and then I've seen him, by the way, give these jokes, again, deadpan, and liberals will take them seriously. I remember oh, in, yes. I remember him at a conference at Princeton, and he did his Watergate jokes, and one of them was, you know, I, uh, I didn't support Nixon until after Watergate. I mean, look, after wage and price controls, Watergate was a breath of fresh air, and all these serious Princeton people were just horrified <laughs> that someone could even make such a joke. He loved punking the left with jokes like that. I was going to say is that you very rarely saw him display his wit in his print in his journalism once in a while he'd write a satirical column and but usually he you know he he was uh, his journalism was um, I think it was uh, John Chamberlain described it as a straightly square, uh, double-joisted, just-the-facts man, uh, like Sergeant Joe Friday. He didn't do a lot of style. And so this was a big surprise for a lot of people is to meet this person who you'd either hear on the radio or read in the paper and find out how uh, gosh darn funny he was all the time.
0: Well, and I think it was because of the National Journalism Center and the, the great work he did there bringing in. Many talented people into journalism who were conservative, again uh, helping them get their start. He was on a college panel. I wasn't there, but I've heard several accounts of this. He's on a panel about student life or, you know, helping young people navigate things and, uh, you know, dangers, things that could trip them up. And a, a female college dean went on and on about, you know, sex and problems that could happen there. And the solution was really a lot of contraception. And we just needed to get the contraception out there, like, you know, pra- you know, throw it at the kids, make sure they had it. And Stan Evans, you know, uh, apparently just, in the deadpan said, you know, my panel, remember, fellow panel uh, member has told us and regaled us uh, with the great utility uh, uh, of the condom and how wonderful it is. And, but she's she has neglected one thing, and that is just how truly comfortable it is to wear. As a matter of fact, I'm wearing one right now. <laughs> I, I've seen a version of that. You know? and, and I every, I've, it's just I just incredible stuff. And she was she was completely <laughs> taken aback. She had no response, no retort whatsoever. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's Dan Evans humor. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Think about so, we you know, the journalism. Part of the journalism as well, you know, this great writer, this great communicator. And he writes the Sharon Statement. Uh, I think that dates back to, was it 1962? 61, I think, or or even 60, I think it's 60. At the home of Bill Buckley, 90 conservative, young conservatives, more or less, activists and thinkers, they choose Stan to draft the Sharon Statement. And so in about 300 words, he announces succinctly, and I enjoyed reading it again in your book, uh, principles of a a foundational statement about conservatism and what they were about. And you contrast that with the Port Huron statement, which I've also had uh, the unfortunate uh, opportunity to read because of what, you know, Amity Slay's book on the 60s. And, um, you know, that statement is 5,000 words and, you know, no one really thinks about it anymore uh, except for self-important leftists. But the, the Sharon statement, talk about that. And I, I also think, um, you know, it's a, a fusionism, uh, statement and, and talk about what fusionism was. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah, the Sharon
1: statement was the founding document for the founding of the young Americans for freedom, uh, you know, for YAF and, it really grew out of the fact that the early enthusiasm for Barry Goldwater, which starts at the 1960 convention, really, uh, was a, largely a youth movement. Uh, it was uh, you know young conservatives like Stan and, you know, people, also people now forgotten. We've lost like Doug Caddy and several others. And they decided after the convention, well, you know, we need to organize the youth. Uh, it's one thing to have college Republicans, but let's have a conservative group, because a lot of people thought, you know, remember the politics of the time, there were lots of conservative Democrats. So. Uh, if you're going to build a conservative movement, it shouldn't just be an adjunct of the Republican Party. So that's when they decided, let's get together, invite, I don't know, like 100 young conservatives came to Buckley's uh, estate uh, for the meeting. And they decided to start an organization, and then they wanted a statement of principles. And that's, as you say, they asked Stan to write to Sharon statement. The first of many such statements Stan wrote for conservatives, and... Again, I think I mentioned that if I didn't, one of the reasons Stan is overlooked now or forgotten already is that he was such a modest person. He never boasted about himself. He never sought the limelight for anything. Uh, And, of course, that makes him more trusted in a lot of ways. Um, But in later years, if you'd ask him about the Sharon Statement, he would never boast of having been the principal author of it. He would, if you asked him directly about it, he'd say, Well, I really, there's nothing in there that's original with me. I was just restating the common sense of the matter, you know, basic conservative principles that have been around for a long time. Uh, so, and which I think is an accurate description. Uh, but yeah, I've always loved the contrast between, what, 350 words of the Sharon statement and 5,000 word repetitive, self referential, <laughs> that ridiculous uh, um, uh, Port uh, Huron statement that launched the SDS.
0: Thinking about the Sharon statement and fusionism more deeply, right. you you in the book note several ways in which Stan was really a part of Frank Meyer's fusionism. He sort of embodied it in his right. journalism and his writing, the way he thought about policy, the way he thought about freedom and virtue rising and falling together. Uh, you know, there's there's a great statement in your book from Stan about you know freedom and virtue have fallen. Uh, but, you know, they will only they can only rise together. You can't isolate freedom from virtue or, or vice versa. Right. And, you know, f- fusionism as a concept of conservatism or a way of thinking about conservatism is sort of fallen on hard times. It's certainly challenged. It's critiqued uh, extensively. There's you know, the active attempt to say this is no longer a part of how conservatives should be. What, what was it and how did Stan understand it?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, so yeah, you're right. You mentioned that Frank Meyer was the key figure, and in one sentence, the idea of fusionism is reconciling uh, you know free market principles uh, of you know libertarianism, if you like, uh, with traditional conservatism. In other words, you're trying to get Milton Friedman and Russell Kirk to play well together. Uh, and Uh, Stan was a good friend of Frank Myers and admired the project and agreed with the substance of it. He didn't like the term fusionism and tried to not use it if he could help it. And his main reason was, uh, you just hinted at it in the way you set the question up, is that he, he thought that the term fusionism has a hint that you're trying to put together two things that don't fit together. And Stan thought that uh, liberty and virtue fit essentially together. And you couldn't have one without the other. There was a reciprocal relation between freedom and virtue. Uh, And people who think you can only have markets without virtue Uh, uh, are mistaken because that'll lead to bigger government. I think that's been true. Uh, Or the other way around. Uh, If you have virtue without individual liberty, well, virtue itself will wither. And he wrote some of the, I think, clearest and most compelling statements of that view. Uh, uh, And You're right. It's fallen on hard times. I, you know, there's a lot of attempts to try and bring it back. Uh, These days, it gets wrapped up with, uh, of course, the nationalism question. I know you follow that very closely. Uh, And we'll see where this goes. But I I think he and Frank Meyer, I think their essential insight was correct. And so one way or another, we have to get back to that project.
0: Well, that is interesting. And maybe another chance to return to Stan Evans' writings in that regard. You mentioned Von Mises and he took uh, he took classes. I don't know how many classes with Von Mises. Is that I mean, the, the way of thinking about his really incisive writing about healthcare and yeah. environmentalism and the intersection of state power in these issues and how he saw it. Is that his main teacher, and what he was always coming back to?
1: Probably, You know, I I wasn't able to find out. uh, There doesn't seem to be any records of what courses he actually took. Stan just described that von Mises would come into a seminar room with a single sheet of paper with just three or four words written on it. He was one of those kind of lecturers. Uh, But the thing, one of the things about Stan's journalism that is unique is that Stan, who'd been an English literature major at Yale, uh, was very able at prose, of course. But Stan was also very numerate. The other journalist he reminds me of from recent years was Warren Brooks, who has always had a chart or a graph or some statistics in every column he wrote. And Stan was very able at finding uh, statistics, uh, whether it was healthcare, care, energy policy, uh, on and on and on. Uh, he, he'd always have at his fingertips some government report that had been ignored by the media. Uh, and so a lot of times his columns would have the facts about inflation, about the defense budget, about you know any parts of the federal budget. He really knew the details of federal spending and all the tricks that they play. So that's what set him apart from a lot of journalists who are not very numerate or are not able to write very well about numbers. Um, and I think he got a lot of that from von Mises, uh, even though I think von Mises is more of a theorist than a quantitative economist. But nonetheless, Stan picked up the intuition for how markets work. And you mentioned healthcare. care. Um, Stan was a demon on, uh, on how government involvement in healthcare distorted the entire market. It wasn't just Medicare and Medicaid that was wrecked by government intervention, but it was the private uh, uh, insurance industry it fell along with a slipstream. And, and yeah, he really thought that we'd messed everything up.
0: <laughs> that he, he was making, the, once the government intervenes with Medicare and Medicaid and starts buying health care and those services, it necessarily affects how private health care is going to be delivered, uh, and uh, the prices that are going to be offered. uh, Thinking about also, you know, this is sort of in the past, in a way, uh, HMOs, health maintenance organizations, uh, initially introduced by the left as a way of controlling costs. People forget that. But, of course, conservatives seem to sign on to that as a way to, the principal way to oppose sort of healthcare socialism. Stan argued, you know, they both... Both sides were wrong to believe in HMOs because they inevitably ration care and ration care in ways divorced from actual consumer choice. Yeah, that's a really important point because, uh, uh, you know, Stan actually
1: once the late 90s after Clinton care, Hillary care had crashed and burned. He actually recommended Republicans work with Democrats or even embrace some Democratic proposals to regulate HMOs. Because, right, your HMOs were thought to have been the market-like solution to the perversities of the healthcare marketplace. And really, you, you put your finger on it. They were a private sector solution to impose the rationing that was being driven by the way the government had distorted the whole sector of the economy. And so Stan thought that conservatives had been way too uh, superficial in embracing HMOs and um, uh, what's some of the other uh, equivalents of it. And, yeah, he didn't like them at all. He wanted to go back to, well, really, he liked the idea that later John McCain ran with, although Stan didn't care for McCain, of course, uh, which was, you know, it was the, the solution, of course, which a lot of listeners will know, is a variation of the school vouchers, right? We should give people a tax credit. Uh, for, or change the tax status of healthcare and go back to having enabling people to buy insurance on the open market and buy the services that they want or need. Uh, and that's not the way it works. Now we have all these mandates and, Oh, I hate the whole healthcare subject. because it's such a black hole,
0: but, uh, but you know, he, he, we're all going in the wrong direction on this. A number of political figures, uh, conservative political figures Stan interacted with. And, you know, I think it, it was in reading your book is sort of instructive for me to think about, you know, I, 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 I tend to have in my mind, Goldwater meant this Reagan meant this Nixon meant that. Uh, but Stan really interacted with these people, uh, r- you know, writing about them, covering their politics, covering their policies, um, but also interacting. Uh, and, and you note, uh, say with, uh, with Barry Goldwater, uh, Barry Goldwater and, and, uh, and Stan and, and the Goldwater campaign, Stan covered that, understood the importance of Goldwater, uh, that also Reagan as well. Maybe talk about those connections. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the,
1: it, we forget now about Goldwater. Uh, well, one thing we forget about Goldwater is that uh, we recall that the uh, sort of liberal Republicans, uh, you know, Scranton, Nelson Rockefeller hated him and undermined his campaign. But we also forget that there were a lot of conservatives at the time, even a few couple at National Review, which otherwise supported Goldwater, who thought, yeah, you know, Lyndon Johnson, he's okay. I mean, he's from Texas. He's sort of a conservative Democrat. And Stan would have none of that. And he wrote a long article on the case for Goldwater right before the election in 64. And part of it was Goldwater's virtues. I'm echoing what Goldwater had said in conscience of a conservative. Uh, But an equal part was anyone who thinks Lyndon Johnson is halfway conservative is all is out of their mind. You should take seriously, he thought, what Johnson had said in his Great Society speech and, you know, he was carrying on with the liberal program of the Kennedy administration. And, of course, he turned out to be absolutely right about that. Um, Reagan he spotted early on as a promising person. He loved Reagan. Uh, He supported him in 68 when Reagan sort of got into the race late. and then he plays a key role, uh, uh, Evans does, in 1970, uh, yeah, 1976, when Reagan was about to go down in flames in North Carolina. And Stan came in, uh, along with other people. He, he, again, disclaimed whole credit for this. Uh, it was an independent expenditure effort, and that's what put Reagan over Gerald Ford in the primaries and revived Reagan's campaign. And a lot of people think a lot of political journalists like Lou Cannon is that if Reagan had lost in North Carolina, that would have been the end of his political career. So it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that Stan's intervention kept Reagan alive and made it possible for him to run and win in 1980. And I'll add one last thought on that is, you know during the 80s, uh, Stan was often very critical of the Reagan administration and had some you know meetings with Reagan and Reagan staff that oftentimes were tense about uh, policy matters. Uh, But he never criticized Reagan directly. Uh, He always directed his uh, critiques at a bad policy or, of course, at uh, some of the liberal Republicans that Reagan had included in his um, White House staff, who we thought were a bad influence, which is probably right. Uh, and then lastly, he didn't like Nixon at all. He never cared for Nixon uh, and was uh, pretty harshly
0: critical of Nixon while Nixon was president. Uh, talk, talk about the Manhattan 12. There's an account in your book of an interview or no, well, not an interview. It would have been an off-the-record conversation, if I remember, between Evans and Kissinger. And you can tell Kissinger is bristling at the questions he's asking and the criticisms. However gently he's delivering them, Kissinger doesn't doesn't like it, what's, what's the rub there for, for Evans? Yeah.
1: That is a great story that I had known about, but uh, I, I found, well, I'll tell about the Kissinger document. Uh, I think it was after Nixon had gone to China, uh, or announced the opening to China, uh, we'd had wage and price controls, uh, we'd had his uh, welfare reform proposal that was you know, essentially guaranteed annual income, that was from Pat Moynihan, and so a number of conservatives got together at Bill Buckley's house up in New York and decided to announce a break I think that the actual term was a group of conservatives suspending support for President Nixon. They didn't say they opposed him, but suspended their support. Uh, and 12 people ended up signing the document that Stan wrote. Once again, they asked him to write the critique. He didn't sign it himself for uh, for reasons that are not entirely clear. Uh, it might be partly because he was still at the Indianapolis News then, and the publisher, Eugene Pulliam, was a big Nixon supporter. And I think maybe Stan didn't want to embarrass him. Stan also wanted to have more critiques on foreign policy than the document included. And apparently some of the discussions are pretty heated. But uh, the sequel was uh, a meeting is proposed. I think Pat Buchanan and the White House uh, brokered it between Stan and several other people and Henry Kissinger to talk about the foreign policy question. And I discovered uh, a declassified document. Uh, It was like, I don't know, eight or 10 single space pages uh, with a record of the meeting. And it's so detailed that I suspect that Kissinger was taping it and had it transcribed. Uh, If not, somebody kept very careful notes. In any case, what you can see in that is Stan just whacking away at Kissinger for their weakness on Vietnam, for their weakness on arms control negotiations with the Soviet Union, and you're right, Kissinger is clearly not liking all this. He's making excuses about a hostile media and a hostile Congress, and Stan is saying, you know, you, who, why pay attention to the New York Times? They're not important, you just you do the right thing. And 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 you're right, Stan was very polite, but very firm, and yeah, Kissinger didn't like it at all. It was a lot of fun to find that.
0: Evan, Evan's opposed, you said he opposed Nixon uh, fairly consistently, uh, yeah. throughout his political career and that, but that sort of maybe a bridge into another part of Stan's career because, you know, Nixon had been, uh, a, a red hunter. I mean, he, right. he, he helped Whitaker Chambers, uh, you know, vindicate himself against Aldrew Hiss by, uh, bringing him into the committee and supporting him in the, in the, House Affairs, uh, oh, the, the Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, uh, which Nixon was on. Uh, and, you know, so that's, I don't know if Stan ever gave him, gave him credit for that, or if that part of Nixon's career just sort of seemed to fall off as domestic and foreign policy loom large in the, in the 60s. But Stan was a defender of McCarthy. He wrote, towards the end of his life, uh, which I now want to go read it, blackballed by history, Uh, A 600 page account very detailed primary source historical account in many respects vindicating the charges McCarthy made uh, while also noting his many character flaws talk about that part of Stan's career why he was so interested in that
1: yeah so that this is a case of someone uh, of Stan really being his father's son uh, his father, for reasons that I couldn't ever find out exactly how it happened, he became ultimately the head of security for the Manhattan Project during World War II, and then with the early Atomic Energy Commission formed right after World War II. And he resigned in uh, sometime in the late 40s, I think that's when he, his father resigned, because of of security, because of an indifference to, uh, I think it was actually after the you know, atomic bomb secret had been leaked to the Soviet Union. His dad actually met Klaus Fuchs at Los Alamos, you know, one of the conspirators with the Rosenbergs, and he was uh, his father was dismayed that people weren't taking internal security seriously, uh, and, and it made his father inclined to be sympathetic to McCarthy's general purpose, which was r- the same thing, right? Uh, so Stan was uh, taking up the cudgels for that cause, and yeah, the McCarthy book uh, does at least two things. One is it just refutes a lot of myths. And, you know, stories uh, and accounts that have settled in uh, the historical record of most McCarthy biographies or most chronicles of the internal security controversies showing that they were flatly wrong. Uh, And then related to that, one of the things that Stan was so good at from his journalistic background is digging for sources and material uh, that, uh, so, for example, he pointed out that You know, McCarthy would say, you know, here are these people in the State Department who have suspected communist connections, and the response they get was, well, they're not with the State Department anymore. They've been weeded out, which may have been true in some cases, but what did Stan do? He went to an an off-site National Archives Center, I think somewhere out in Maryland and found old State Department phone directories from the periods in the 1950s that were in question. And lo and behold, these people were still listed in the State Department phone directory. Well, no one had ever done things like that before. Uh, But Stan dug into all kinds of things um, that no one else had ever pawed through in the FBI archives and in lots of other places and just debunked a lot of things that were wrong and said that, in fact, a lot of people that McCarthy had... Uh, suspected of being communists or disloyal, were in fact communists or disloyal. And, you know, the left has always wanted to sweep it under the rug and say McCarthy was mean and reckless and all the rest. So it's quite a uh, um, piece of work. It is great reading, too, I have to say.
0: How many feet of uh, storage space houses the research collection that Stan used to write that book at the Hoover Institution? It's uh, which speaks to the massive effort that it took. I mean, he, so this book. If you're going to refute it, you would actually uh, have to go through those primary documents or unless you knew them well on your own and go through the book and and make, uh, you know, refutations. And, you note in the reviews that really no one did that. No, the reviews were all just sneers, you know, you know, how, how can someone possibly
1: see anything nice about Joe McCarthy? That was the character of all the reviews.
0: Yeah, the the, uh, the idea being, I mean, I like that the blackballed by history. This is somehow a body of knowledge that we can't even really touch yet uh, or or articulate. Um, so but what, what? why? I mean, did he was there some larger theoretical point for San in defending McCarthy, uh, say, along the lines of. You know, this is this is sort of like a turning point in American politics and, you know, the way McCarthy was treated. Uh, Was there something like that for him?
1: Yes. So think about think about the current moment we're in right now and how the phrase the deep state has caught on. And I don't know if Stan would have liked that phrase. I think he might have uh, or some of the imprecise ways that it is used Uh, But but uh, certainly when you get into the 60s and the years after McCarthy, uh, what he he did see a unity in the self-interest of government uh, organizations, especially the intelligence and foreign policy communities uh, and sort of the insidiousness of how they close ranks. And so I think you could draw a straight line between what he saw happen to McCarthy and the way our politics has unfolded ever since. Uh, so I think he'd be uh, – Stan, we're still with us today. I think he'd be very much in harmony with a lot of the people who are complaining about the character of the FBI today uh, and the CIA and, uh, and so forth. Uh, yeah, he thought that was uh, all of a, a, a problem endemic to modern
0: American government. And also the way in which the left operates. I mean you – Yeah, exactly. The, the attempt at character assassination. But he also – I mean, and, and you note, know I haven't read the book. Uh, he's very clear about McCarthy's problems and – some of it, I mean, I think Stan had a joke that he didn't approve of McCarthy's aims, but he approved of his methods. Right. That was one of his jokes. In yes. the book, he says one of the problems are the methods, which, you know, I think that was Whitaker Chambers' point in criticizing McCarthy, that you know, he actually had taken this very serious cause of anti-communism and, and damaged it with how he approached it. And I, I do think that charge remains true. Yes,
1: that's right. And but there's one other aspect of this I'll mention, and that was his final book, which came out after the McCarthy biography. He uh, wrote a book uh, with his old, uh, his great friend Herb Romerstein, who had been a senior congressional staffer on intelligence matters, and it was called Stalin's Secret Agents, and it went back through, you know, some of the figures McCarthy had identified and several others, you know, Harry Dexter White, who played such a big role in the Whitaker Chambers Alger Hiss story. And what they go through is raising the questions, you can't prove it, You can't get to a firm conclusion, but raising the questions, how many Soviet sympathizers were there in the Roosevelt administration in World War II, and what effects on policy did they actually have? Uh, and that's considered an outrageous question to raise today, but, uh, but Stan and Herb went through that and you know, laid out a lot of compelling circumstantial evidence that that's a question we should have taken more seriously.
0: Yeah, and it's, I mean, obviously, as you know, you can't prove it, but of course, philosophical frameworks inevitably matter when yeah. you come to concrete details of deciding policy. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so maybe we can close um, with Stan's book, The Theme is Freedom. That's its a book I read in college and had a tremendous yeah. impact on me. Um and thinking about a different way of thinking about the philosophical basis of American constitutionalism and freedom and virtue generally, you you note the book should be a conservative classic. Uh, talk about that.
1: Yeah, I thought this is a great place to end because what a contrast between this person who practiced journalism and policy wonkery, we might say, in history, and a book that's uh, pretty theoretical but also very detailed, and also because he's a great writer, quite readable and. He thought that a lot of the standard accounts of the American founding were incomplete, including by, you know, some of our Straussian friends. He he didn't pick arguments with him or fights with him, but he said, look, the Christian tradition has been ignored. Uh, We placed too much weight on John Locke as the originator of the social compact theory. And he was a big champion of the common law tradition, which he says, look, if you go back centuries before Locke, you saw, uh, 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 you know, restraints being put on the power of the king. Uh, which you then trace back to the Romans. Uh, and so it's a wonderful historical account, richly detailed, uh, and I think offers a complement to an awful lot of other accounts of the American founding and the nature of, of modern individual freedom. And all done in, what, I don't know, 300 very readable pages, Um the the bibliography is extensive. He really did his homework. Took him a long time to write it. I know, um, but I think what an extraordinary thing to be able to be this productive workaday journalist and a serious theoretician at the same time. That's a pretty rare combination, and that's why I said at the beginning uh, with you is that if he'd chosen an academic career, I think he would have produced works that we'd have on the shelf next to Vogelin and Strauss and others of that kind. Uh, instead, we got both. We got the journalist, the political activist, and the theorist.
0: So the, th- the theme is freedom, the theological contribution uh, yes. to the shape of Western constitutionalism. You know, that was the first time I had encountered that argument. And you know, that's something that I think about uh, regularly in and, and my, and my own uh, work is drawing those connections which everyone seems to want to either ignore or assume away. Stan was remarkably theologically
1: literate and knowledgeable. Uh, that was a big surprise uh, in going through his work.
0: And, and I suppose here at the end, you know, we've, we've, we've touched on this. I mean, and you make this point throughout the book, his character, who he was in his profession, how he helped assisted other people, the way he even delivered criticism. He tried to not mention people by name. You've noted that. Right. Um, and it was just uh, this, is, this is someone who is in a incredibly aggressive field. Competitive field, uh, but he did it with a, a smile and did it with grace.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah, he. Uh, that's an important point. He almost never would attack another conservative that he disagreed with by name, with the sole exception once or twice of George Will, who really. Oh really yeah, nuts. George Will. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and even there, though, it was done on the level of argument. He, d- he didn't call George Will any names or, you know, the way he might be today by so many people. Uh, and but he 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 was very critical of uh, actually in a certain way, it was Will's Statecraft is Soulcraft, a book that Will has disavowed, oddly enough, that Stan uh, that helped prompt Stan to write his own book. The theme is freedom.
0: Oh, that's yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I can only imagine what Stan would do with Will's uh, low voltage atheism that he's announced. Well, Stephen Hayward, the book is M. Stanton Evans, Conservative Wit, Apostle of Freedom from Encounter Books. And it uh, comes out in early March, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Richard. And that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening to The Daily Signal podcast. You can find The Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and a number of other channels. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks for listening. The Daily
1: Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Rob Bluey and Virginia Allen. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.